Welcome back to the Millennial Pastors Podcast. I'm Michaela Johnson. And I'm Caleb Haynes. And we're your guest co-hosts for season 10. We're here having conversations around creation care and what it means to be Christian on planet Earth. Over this season, we'll be chatting with scientists, theologians, and other Christians who are doing the work of Earth care in their specific context. So we hope that this will bear fruit for you and your ministry and your work in the world. Okay, I am here uh, with my compadre uh, in Creation Care Crime, Michaela, and we are virtually sitting uh, with our friend Tamina, who is in Kent, Washington. Uh, And so, so great to have you here. Thanks for having me. This is great. Nice to meet you both. Yeah, yeah. And as we're recording this, Michaela is actually in Costa Rica right now. So do you want to say hello from there? Hi from Costa Rica. I wish you all could join me. It's wonderful you're here. I'm a little jealous. I'm a little jealous. Yeah, seriously, me too. Well, awesome. So, uh, yeah, we're here with Tamina Mortelli, and she is, uh, she's actually a native of Bangladesh, but now lives in Kent, Washington, and though born into a Muslim family, she's had her life changed through an encounter with Jesus, and Tamina and her husband, Grantley, uh, are actually Nazarene church planners in Salt Lake City, Utah, and ended up moving to Washington State in something like 2016, and uh, worked at uh, and with Hillside um, Church of the Nazarene there in Kent. And uh, yeah, and so Tamina's just done some amazing and life-changing work through community gardens uh, there and currently works as Director of Client Services uh, Immigration. And um, and anyway, I just want to welcome you uh, to this conversation. I'm so thankful that we're able to, to have a little chat. So, uh, and you feel free to correct any of those details that I uh, <laughs> may or may not have gotten wrong. But... That was great. Okay. Cool, cool. So uh, I'd love to just jump in, and Michaela, feel free to uh, interrupt at any point here. Um, but I, I'd love to just jump in, maybe just with your story. Tell us um, a little bit more about who you are, and maybe how you got to where where you're at, quote unquote, uh, in in life right now. And and, and who are you? <laughs> well, so I was born in Bangladesh, and so um, you know. When I was younger, um, we had this huge kind of a civil war that happened in Bangladesh, which caused our family to be displaced. And it happened so quickly. You know, we were having dinner. Uh, what happens to people when war begins? Sometimes you hear the news and sometimes it takes everyone by surprise. And we were having dinner with our family. I have two older sisters and a younger brother. My grandparents were visiting. We were in the same house, telling jokes, eating dinner. And then overhead bombs began to explode. Windows broke in, in our house and this amazing crazy war had begun my dad was targeted for a death list um because he had worked on a project so anybody with any education any background were kind of systematically being taken out um because if you have a mass of people who can't read or write they're easier to control and we ended up becoming displaced and uh went to went to live in yemen my sisters ended up in canada and I ended up in the United States actually by myself. Um, and English is my fifth language. So if I wow. don't make sense today, it's that is really <laughs> impressive. 
I learned most of my English in Idaho. <laughs> oh my word. <laughs> um, I was, because I was under 18, I was living with this American family on a farm in Idaho. Um, and so that's how I ended up going to NNU um, at the time because it was the nearest, um, nearest college or Christian university. And I actually encountered, like I said, we're all a Muslim. I've never heard of Jesus, never knew who he was. Any concept of Christianity was foreign. But in the middle of that war, um, the reason I'm sharing this backstory, I think some of the stuff I do will make sense. And now in connection to kind of what I experienced starting out, um, we were in these boats uh, escaping, right? Uh, my father wanted to take us into a village, leave us there and then come back to the main city so that if the, you know uh, people were looking for him they would not find the entire family and we would be at risk so that was his plan is to take us set aside you know put take us into a village where the fighting was less intense um, and then come back to the main city and so there's a lot of rivers and waterways in Bangladesh um, and so we were on one of these rivers and there was dead bodies in the water a lot of different things were happening during that time and we would try to hide, you know, underneath uh, the boat by using kind of the reeds to breathe out of um, different things. And one day we didn't get a chance to get out of the boat and a motorized boat was coming towards us. And um, it was dark, it was at night, and I was holding my grandfather's hand on my left hand side. On my right hand side was the edge of the boat. Water was sloshing from the wake. And this is, a, I'm talking a small boat, you know, um, and the rest of my family, I could hear my grandmother just saying surahs under her breath. And, um, you could fear, feel the fear of, you know, my, you know, I was about nine. So, you know, like you don't really know when your grandparents are feeling fear or your parents, but in this case, you could feel the palpable fear as we were getting boarded by these folks. They had semi-automatic weapons. They had these large lights that were shining on our faces. And they were yelling questions and you could hear them getting the guns ready. And we we're like, okay, this is, this is it, you know, and pulling my grandfather's hand. And, um, he was just mumbling some prayers under his breath. And, um, and I was so scared. My heart was beating so loudly that I thought people could hear it outside of my body, kind of like a cartoon, you know, like, yeah. um, you know, it's, it was so thundering in my ear and I looked to my right at the edge of the boat and there was a presence there as, as real as could be. And I knew that it was God. And you know, when God shows up, he doesn't have to introduce himself. <laughs> and uh, when I turn, when I looked at him, he didn't speak. I, I just felt my heart rate just went down immediately and I could just, I could breathe and I, I knew things were going to be okay. So I, I kept pulling at my grandfather's hand so he could see what I was looking at, but it was almost like two separate things were happening. And, you know, the, the war kind of ended, different things happened. We ended up in Yemen. And this was seven years later. And I later found out those are numbers of completion in the Bible. Um, seven years later, um, in the basement of the American embassy in Yemen, I was invited to this kind of group, which I didn't know was a church service, but it was like a group of expats and others um, and I walked into the room and that presence that was on the boat was in that room and I didn't know anything about the Holy Spirit and I said where is he 
And I, I looked at, I kept asking people, where is he? Where is he? And wow. then people started explaining to me who Jesus was and um, what that meant. And I'm like, oh, what that seems like a cheater way. Like, you mean all I have to do is like say this prayer and all my sin go? I mean, that, that makes that just seems like a shortcut. Nobody has told me about this shortcut. And they're like, we're telling you now. Um, so a lot of different things happened. Um, I knew that if I took that step, um, I would lose everyone and everything I knew. And that ended up happening. I did lose my family. I got um, kicked out of the family um, during that process. So when I did end up in um, Idaho, I I'm shortening this story, but um, oh, go for it. Also taking the chance, you know, actually going to a Christian school was another huge mark um, against me for my family. And then uh, they were watching me to see if this thing would stick, right? Um, this Christianity thing, because part of that was what they were perceiving it to be is not only was I rejecting uh, God, I was rejecting my culture, my heritage, my family, uh, which is a big it's all connected. And then marriages are arranged. And when I met my husband, also at NNU, and he's from Barbados. <laughs> oh, wow. This uh, like, that's crazy. You picked your own spot. You're wanting to pick your own spouse. He's also Christian. It's like another check mark, another, you know, like I, I couldn't win. So uh, it's kind of painful to be, in some ways, to be kicked out of the family by the time you're 17, because uh, really there's not much to live up to. Um, after that i mean once they kick you out what's the worst yeah it's already it's already gone down <laughs> so that that kind of gives i think a little bit of a background of um not only being displaced at what many refugees and asylum seekers and others face not not every story is the same but that feeling of displacement of not knowing where you fit in where you belong the language is unfamiliar um, so many things are unfamiliar the food the culture, um, the smells, the customs, the people, you know, the, you know, the things that are familiar that people can anchor themselves in. And I think this is part of creation is the earth, the ground, the soil that feels and looks familiar. And when you look up at the sky, that view is familiar. And you can anchor yourself back knowing that somewhere out there are people you know and love who have similar views. And it grounds you back. And I think that's the original part of the creation story, right? Um, it anchors us back to something bigger than ourselves. Mm, man, that's amazing. We can just stop there. <laughs> Thank you for sharing your story with us. It's incredible. Yeah, that's such a beautiful story, and uh, I hesitate because I feel like I've got um, a thousand other questions uh, just about that. But man, that's uh, just you describing that encounter on the boat and everything. Like, I mean, uh, wow, that's that's really that's you know, what's beautiful. Interesting about that to me is I I didn't know anybody who had actually seen or met Jesus, and then several years ago I had a chance to meet Muslim background believers, right? Other people who came, you know, who have a Muslim background. And every single person, and I met 40 people at the same time from different countries that were Muslim background believers. And every single person had a story where they physically encountered Jesus. 
Mm. And it blew me away because I would have never heard. I would have never, and ni- neither would any of these 40 people that I met. And every the commonalities of our stories was this mm. kind of this face-to-face encounter that you can turn away from. And no matter what else happens in my Christian journey, uh, whether I agree with a denomination or a church, mm. you know what I can't turn away from? That Jesus mm. came for me on a boat. I will know until the day I see him face to face um, on the other side, right? That he's the real thing. And uh, you can't walk away from that. Mm. Man, that's what's up. Yeah. I love that. Well, uh, so uh, so you went to NNU, you went to Northwestern Nazarene University. Is that what you said? It was NNC at the time. That's how old I am. (laughs) Oh, my word. Holy cow. And so you met your husband there. Yes. Cool. We were like two chocolate chips in a marshmallow factory. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Nailed it. Oh, that's amazing. So, um, yeah, how did you how did you end up there at NNU? Tell me a little bit uh, as to what you know, what part of your story, uh, what's your Nazarene story there? Yes. Um, so the family, again, that I was staying with, uh, attended a free Methodist church um, nearby. And then we were, as I wanted to go to college or university, because my Christian faith was so new and, and forming, I really had a desire to, to kind of continue that by going to a Christian university. And the closest one happened to be, you know, in a new physically, like location-wise. And a lot of free Methodists were also like, hey, this is a, you know, similar faith background. You know, they were like, this is great. Like, try this out. Um, so that, that family really introduced me to NNU or NNC at that time. Um, and then my husband's story is equally kind of astounding. He's a direct product of Nazarene missions. Um, and so his, his family, like his mom didn't, yeah, they were not believers and then his entire family um he has eight siblings um became christians and also joined the nazarene church um and his two older brothers actually are, served as district superintendents in the nazarene church and in the caribbean and uh, and the so it, yeah it's pretty amazing and he was he wanted to go to university and there's this um he met Doc Laird, who uh, was a professor at NNU, and he happened to have been, there was a hurricane morning, he was traveling to another island, he got rerouted to Barbados, and it happened to be near a Sunday, and he wanted to go to a church, and that's how he met Grantley, who was ushering, and they had such a strong connection that um, that they kind of, he became a mentor, and that's how Grantley ended up going to NNC, Doc Laird really was a mentor to both of us and uh, really was grandparents to my our children yeah it was it's a pretty cool story both mm-hmm. ways in both directions and what are the chances for somebody from barbados and somebody from uh, bangladesh meeting in napa idaho right <laughs> that that's awesome that's so good wow those, uh, yeah, that's somehow, somehow, like those are the Nazarene stories that we hear. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, so the the reason uh, we uh, first met, it was in 2019, and it, it was just a phone call meeting. 
but uh, we were, this was back, we were planning for our first Creation Care Summit in Flint, Michigan, and uh, it was like the summer of 2019, and um, I'm just, I'm, you know, we're just sort of like uh, putting feelers out everywhere, and a pastor said, do you know Tamina in Kent, Washington, and have you heard of uh, Hillside Paradise Parking Plots Community Garden, you know? And I was like, who and what? And uh, and so um, let's, maybe let's fast forward there for a minute. And I'd, I'd love to, to like maybe tell our listeners uh, how, how you got into that, what, what that is and what that means to you. So as I mentioned earlier, you know, the commonalities of people, even if you're displaced, is often the connection with the land and the connection with the sky, and really the connection with the earth when you're finding yourself in a new place. And uh, one of the, the key reasons why we moved to Washington, um, so the current pastors at, uh, the lead pastors at Hillside Church is Evan Rhonda Tustin. And actually that connection was made at NNU at the time, uh, so several years ago. They're older, but they're closer to my husband Grantley's age. There was that connection. And they'd been talking to us and like, you guys need to move because the church is um, intentionally and purposefully becoming more multicultural and looking more like the community. And so when a upper middle class white church decides to make that move, uh, they need to have people on the team that look more like the community and know what the community is about. And those are just some of the conversations we're having. We're like, I don't think God's telling us to do that. And he's like, yeah, he is. And so yeah. <laughs> uh, we, we had other things we were doing. Yeah, because you were, and, you were, you had already planted the church yeah, and that was right. kind of happening. Yeah. And so yeah. it took a lot of prayer and a lot of, uh, uh, we did two concentrated 90 day sessions of prayer to figure out, okay. Um, and we agreed as, a, as spouses, husband and wife, that we would not pray out loud in front of each other about this issue because we would let God speak to us directly. And then after 90 days, we would, we would tell each other what God has revealed to us, right, through this prayer time. And at the 90th day, we were both traveling in two different directions. And we happened to meet up at the Seattle airport, Seattle-Tacoma airport for completely different reasons. And we met at a common place and we said, so this is the 90th day. What did, what has God been telling you? And we said, it makes no sense on paper, financially, logistically, but I think God's telling us to move. And we both said the same thing. We're like, all right, that's what we're doing. So we did. <laughs> wow. Um, that. Which at and, this point, you've basically got a master's degree and like uh, letting go and, and like turning that corner into the unknown. Yeah, we sold our house, we sold everything, we moved. Um, and he, before that, we had gone to visit um, to see kind of the area, kind of just just a visit. Um, but as we moved there, I, I remember distinctly. Um, so the church, um, this is kind of a little history of Washington. The Seattle area is, as you know, growing rapidly, and it's um, very expensive, like housing prices and other things, um, very expensive to live here. Um, and so this particular church has been around since 1962. The building has been around. Um, it's a large building. Also, it's, it's on a campus that's almost six acres. Um, and th they got 
an additional uh, land that was attached that they also paved into a parking lot because in the 80s people like to pave things and so um <laughs> so there was an additional like a little over an acre almost an acre and a half a parking lot um that was just part of the you know the campus of the church that wasn't really used as a parking lot because it wasn't needed um but it was the whole church is in the middle of town right near a transit station um you know where Kent is the eighth most diverse city in the United States. So this incredible diversity and where land and, and location near public transportation is huge. But like how people can get to you is a big deal, right? Um, and so here's this huge parking. It's on a hill. That's why it's called Hill Trencher. So uh, as you know, in the area, Seattle area, you've heard it rains. Um, so it rains quite a bit. Um, there's average of 62 inches of rain in the area um, per year. And when you're on a hill, right, and water, often if you have an impervious surface, like a parking lot, the water doesn't have a chance to go into the ground. So it would collect and roll over to the kind of the bottom of the hill, and then it would flood the neighbors below. So that was kind of an ongoing problem that was happening at the church is flooding was happening during the winters, you know, to the neighbors below and including there was a school right below like that's on a fairly sharp incline hill right and but i looked at this parking lot and it was like god was talking to me i'm like this is so much potential this is even before we moved and I'm like look at this space i bet this area is located in a food desert uh and i'm like let me do some research and sure enough we're in a USDA food desert where in an urban area, um, within one mile, you don't have access to a major grocery store for a lot of where the people are living, right? That's the definition of a food desert. That's what it was. Um, and then once we moved, I'm like, this parking lot is a gem. Like often you don't have resources, but here is land so incredibly located, like strategically in the middle of time. If you were to buy that right now, it would be, you couldn't even touch that. Um, and the church could subdivide it and make it into housing and make a lot of money. But the church had a heart, you know, as a whole, like, what can we, how can we benefit the community? So I decided to do some research. And this is before I went to work at World Relief to find out what does the community look like? What does it, what is it that the community wants or needs? Met with the city council, met with, you know, a whole bunch of folks in, in the community, neighborhood programs local nonprofits figuring out what's the demographics, what is it that people need? And what seemed to be the common theme that people were saying is people need a place where they could grow food. And there's Seattle City itself has community garden program called Peapatch. But in South King County, where we're located, which is south of Seattle, all of these communities, it, it's not, there's not a network of, of gardens and places where people, especially where they could get to with quick public transportation, um, where they don't need a car to get to it, that's that's a huge need. And at that time, in the city of Kent, there was a tiny little garden spot that was managed by the city. It was constantly full, and there was nobody of refugee immigrant background who could even get a spot. And the demographics, as I mentioned, it's the eighth most diverse city in the United States. And people missed food that they wanted to be able to grow that they couldn't buy at their local grocery store. Even if they could pay the money, they couldn't have access to it. Because who has who sells Harry Gord at the Kroger mm. or your nearest Safeway, right? Or long beans or bitter melon. I mean, they're 
you're not going to find that at a local grocery store. But what people miss the most when they're displaced are food that reminds them of home. And they wanted to be able to have a chance to get their hands in the soil. If you're in an apartment, you're not going to have that option. And they wanted to be able to get to the space by taking public transportation because they wouldn't have a car. And so here's this one and a half acre. But you know what? It's covered in asphalt. So, and the church didn't have money. So what are the ways to solve that? To You know, you have the space. You have the desire. How do we solve this? So that journey began with be, becoming a multi-benefit site, saying who are the people around who can provide resources and what's the problem here? It floods on a regular basis. It's on a hill. And stormwater pollution is a big deal, right? That's polluted stormwater. So I began by solving for stormwater pollution. And that's what funded the entire, uh, pretty much the garden. So over time, we were able to depave. And by that time, I started working for World Release. And if you recall, I asked for 30% of my time. And the immigrant, the refugee community that you're resettling, that's the other thing people said. I wish we had a place to grow food. Um, so it, it resonated. People said, I wish we had a place to access that. We're, we, would, we would love that, that we could get to easily. Um, so this would benefit not only the church, who has this desire to do that, but World Relief is serving um, refugee newcomers as well as immigrants, right? And the overall community, the broader community that beyond the service of World Relief, right? That was the, the cry. We wish we had a place. Here's the place, but it's covered in asphalt. It's on a hill. It gets flooded. There's all these issues. But those are the challenges that made it the perfect location, really, to solve more than one problem. And we ended up becoming, as we depay, um, so depaving is a huge green stormwater infrastructure benefit. That means water goes into the ground instead of flowing over and picking up more, more pollution. So 70% of the pollution that ends up in the Puget Sound is not from industrial polluters. It's really what's coming off of the roads and paved surfaces. Wow, 70%. Mm -hmm. So there's not a way to filter that. So even though we're not right by the Puget Sound by location, what we do in that space directly impacts the entire watershed, right? And so when you're depaving, so we depaved over 50,000 square feet of asphalt. Now we have made a permeable surface using volunteers and all kinds of different resources and then getting it designed in place. And because it was a hill, there's also how do you mitigate that flooding? by creating an engineered bioswale at the bottom. Bioswale is an engineered linear um, space where you can capture polluted water and then slow, clean it with the soil and the plants that are planted there. So the root system actually naturally cleans that dirty stormwater and releases it back into the system. Uh, but what if we overlaid that with a food forest? Now, people would have access to food beyond the seasonality of a growing season. That would be trees and shrubs. People could vote on the design. They could choose the plant themselves. And it would be around longer than a seasonal garden because it would be an actual tiered food forest. And it would also help clean dirty water. So that was one of the, and it was funded again by waste treatment. Uh, division of King County, because they are interested in clean, polluted stormwater being cleaned. And then um, the overall design of the garden, because again, you're on a hill. So 
rain gardens, which is another way of cleaning polluted stormwater. Um, because it's on a hill, water is coming rushing down from the upper you know, neighborhoods above us as well, right? And so five rain gardens on site that manages and cleans over a million gallons of polluted stormwater. The big bioswale and polluted forest at the bottom of the, the lowest point of the garden cleans an additional four million gallons of polluted stormwater. Wow. Plus produces like a whole thriving food forest, right? And then 50, you know, garden plots where people from 25 countries are growing food. And here's the fun part. And here's what I think is the cool part about God's economy. Several years earlier, um, I hear from, from weeping in the shing of teeth, the church okay. changed. It's a big building, 30,000 square feet of roof. Um, wow. So they had to replace the roof and they went with a metal roof. And the other roof, it's much older. But because it was a newer metal roof, you're able to capture water from that root that would normally hit the roof, fall off, and then once it hit the pavement, it would again become polluted as it went into the storm drain. We decided to capture water from half of the roof, so 15,000 square feet, in these huge cisterns. So there's five 4,000-gallon cisterns that capture water from the roof. We did some testing and found out it was great for irrigation. The 80% of the garden's irrigation comes from the water capture from the roof. And in the winter, that provides a way for capturing clean water that would hit the roof. And before it becomes polluted, you're using that as a retention pond. So then it's slowly releasing it into, it's getting full and released, full and released in a cycle um, so that it slows the flow of water so it doesn't overwhelm and flood. Um, so it acts like a retention pond during the winter and then... Mm. During the summer, it's used for irrigation. So it has five different types of green stormwater infrastructure that's happening in that place. So right now, school kids and others are often use tours for that place. There's interpretive panels. There's all this learning that's taking place related to science and nature and climate change and green stormwater infrastructure, as well as people growing food they miss from their country. And people from all these different countries who are making friendships, um, you know, and it's, it's this incredible place that's won all these awards because it's a way to reimagine a space, an urban space that would still be a neglected parking lot. Oh, cool. Those are my, my two favorite places to connect with people is outside and around a table. So when we can combine those things together. What a magical space. It's great. There's um, also an outdoor, gar- uh, outdoor kitchen in that space and five different ways of composting. So there's vermiculture, there's food digester, regular composting. So those who live in apartments don't have a chance to compost. So they can bring, if you're gardening there, you can bring your food waste there to compost. And it's used back in the garden. We use cover crop. It's 100% organic. So um, we've been certified as salmon say. Um, oh, wow. I didn't know you could even get certified for that. I love that. Yes. That's so cool. That's great. For for me here in Costa Rica, where I'm living, this is pretty some pretty standard ways of engaging, um, especially my neighbors here. They all are very focused on eco initiatives and protecting their space, uh, which is kind of a trend for lots of Costa Ricans. But for my 
friends and neighbors in the state, some of this might sound pretty um, new to them or really dramatic, you know, lots of things all at once. Um, so did you find that uh, when you were planning and, and implementing these kinds of strategies with your neighbors, was this something new or did you have a lot of buy-in from those around you? So here's the interesting thing. Whenever um, you should always engage the community um, and not just the church community because that's who's going to church there, but the overall community who's going to participate in this. That includes the neighbors and those who would garden, um, including the local school that would get flooded <laughs> every year, which is right down the street, downstream, right? Um, what's interesting is um, because of this particular swath of land, the bottom area was kind of hidden from view from the upper level. There was a lot of drug use, a lot of different things that was happening, um, which was a problem for the neighbors um, but because it was unattended, right? A parking lot that's unattended invites bad behavior. Um, so as all of these processes started and we engaged, you know, the, the neighbors, we engaged the school, like in the design and what it should look like, people were so excited because the buy-in, something positive happening in the space where previously maybe negative things have happened was very exciting. Um, and then also what it would mean for the community to give you an idea. Some of the neighbors, you know, they have neighboring fences. They actually have their own kind of their camera system, like the ring, you know, and some of the neighbors have actually placed cameras facing towards the garden and given us access to their links to say, we want to keep an eye on the place. Here's the link. Um. We, we want to be part of like kind of seeing what goes on. If there's behavior that's, you know, not right, we, we will help you. Um, so that's, that's the, the excitement and the buy-in um, city council members. Um, we have a city council member who actually has a plot there because she wanted to make sure from the inception she would be connected to the this broader diverse community by not as a city council member, but knowing them um, because they're fellow gardeners. And um, so the, and the other amazing thing um, I will throw in here, and I think this is part of God's design, why diversity is so important, how he created us, you know, that, that entire concept of diversity, why it's part of God's plan is, um, I'm sure you're aware, if, you're, if you keep planting the same thing in the same soil, um, you can have things like club root or other bacteria. Things will grow if you don't rotate crops or the same things are growing in the same space. Um, but what we noticed is people from Burma will grow very similar fruits, but somebody from Ukraine will grow something very different. And somebody from Afghanistan will grow even more different food. So by helping people to switch plots, you're automatically rotating crop. And that diversity of people growing different things helps the soil quality just by people rotating plots uh, and people knowing I should take care of this area because next year my neighbor or somebody else will have this and I will receive somebody else's and I want to receive a good one, right? A well taken care of one. And it's an automatic crop rotation without making people doing that because again, different people from different cultures grow different things and it fosters conversation. What is it that you're growing? How do you eat that? Let's have a potluck, which again, is fantastic. Wow, that's so cool. Oh, sorry. I feel like there was a link other. 
uh yeah wow that's that's amazing i really now i i get why uh you got the word paradise in there because that's you know that's what it, it really does sound uh man that sounds so cool it just makes me think like churches everywhere like we should all be paving parking lots um yeah <laughs> i mean really we have we have way too many of them uh yeah. you know it's just like and and this idea of of seeing uh seeing potential in these spaces and because really i mean of, of course of course there are and is the the high influx of um immigrants and and everything else there you know that may not be present in every context, but every context does have its own set of needs and 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 different uh, dynamics that you know. And so, you're going into a place really with a set of eyes for something, right? That God has given you that's a part of your story, and that you were able to sort of turn the gem on that and and see the same place that everyone else saw, except through a different lens. And that's what I love about that story and about uh you guys' work there and um i mean it's like human biodiversity uh right at, at work and so i think man that's just that's just so beautiful so how long did it take you guys to actually depave well actually began quite early and part of the thing that i i like to share with churches and others who are thinking of maybe things like that the first rule is finding out what works within that community because every community is not the same and so you know knowing what it is that the community wanted really helped to shape what should go there right um mm. and then because there's a whole i don't know if you're familiar familiar with the latin term nihil novus and novus nothing about us without us is for us so even if you have a good idea uh, for your community and you haven't talked to them it might be about them, but it's not with them. Um, and so they have to, the community has to be included in the process or it's not for them. Um, and so including everyone in the process from the very beginning, it's, it's beautiful because, and it honors people because they're part of that story. They own it, even if they don't own it, they have that ownership. And the idea that we, we are really not owners, right? We are stewards. And so um, the church may right now own that land, but really we're all on the land right now of the Coast Salish people. And we, we're taking up space there. We don't really technically belong there. And we're stewards for a while, right? And as we're inviting other people into that space to partner with us and grow food, all of those people, they're not landowners and they won't be in this place that's so urban and expensive. But they get to speak into that process of how to steward it, how to take care of it. And they know each one that besides growing food that's important and culturally relevant to them, what's happening in that space is impacting the whole watershed and place. It's bigger that we share, um, that we're getting to participate in something bigger. And everybody loves that. They love that, that knowledge and being able to understand the impact we have on spaces that we don't have to own. You don't have to own something to steward it. God put us on this earth to be stewards of it, not to be owners of it. Yeah, and, that's and I so think, important. Yeah, to be able to think that way and to know that you don't have to own a space um, to speak into it and to take care of it because it's the air we breathe and the spaces we share benefit all of us. And so that's been part of the beautiful 
kind of journey and the story um, and to include people again from the beginning and then figure out how do we solve more than one problem at a time. And then also for the churches to realize, are we willing to share our name? Are we willing to share our ministry um, to say, we did this in partnership with all of these people. We couldn't do it on our own. It's right. not just the ministry of the Hillside Church. It's not just the ministry of World Relief Western Washington. It's not just, it doesn't belong to any one group. We, everybody needed each other to make this happen. Hmm. Yeah. Tell me, tell me more about that and about um, that, you know, that journey, because the, the success story does really sound like it's uh, hinged on these partnerships. And were these partnerships kind of already existing, you know, between the church and more relief and et cetera? Or is this something that, you know, was, you know, again, kind of cultivated from the ground up? Yeah, it wasn't existing. Um, so this was cultivated, right? Um, and it helped, it helped that I was part of both, right? So, uh, but it can be cultivated even if you don't have a person who's toggling back and forth, right? Um, but the trust level was faster, right? Because I was straddling kind of both worlds. But it, I have done this similar things in other spaces, other places where really it needs to be a trusted relationship and to know that, you know, you can trust each other. And then other partners will come, like the entire county, conservation district, um, the nature conservancy, all of those other players that are there with funding and other resources, um, you know, with education, um, with all of those TILF alliance, you know, like the partners go, list goes on and on. Uh, because you're inviting other people into the space. And again, saying, we don't own this this all by ourselves, you know, and for churches to be willing to say, we are doing this here, but it's not, we don't own this whole thing. We need these collaborations. We need these partners. And I think often what holds us back as churches is we're not willing to share our name or share the fame, right? We're not. Yeah. We're not willing to say we can't do this on our own. We need, we need these partnerships. Man, I think that's a prophetic word. You know, it's. I think all too often that is the temptation, isn't it? And and to even maybe not not even be about the fame, or to just or just maybe the paradigm of ministry that we've often been given is one that we have to sort of like. Uh, you know, well, I mean, let's be honest, it's a little bit of the American way uh, of to kind of create our own. Uh, every, everyone has their own fill in the blank, right? Uh, and we're going to do our own version of that uh, versus collaboration, and um, which is how the natural world works, right? Isn't it? Uh, I yeah. mean, that, uh, you know, often I'll hear that plants don't even actually compete with one another, uh, right? But uh, they are in relationship with one another and uh, that, that they find a co there's a coexistence that, you know, most often is, is what actually occurs, you know, if you walk out into quote unquote the wild. Um, yeah. And so I think I feel like some of the, you know, if there's some themes here that, that I feel like I'm, we're hearing, I love this just thought of like one in this story there, uh, it's not just one isolated issue or quote unquote problem, but it's that you're recognizing that 
all of these things are already connected to all of these things. And uh, the parking lot, the lot, the storm water, the, the uh, mal stewardship of uh, said environment or uh, the shady area where not so great things are happening. Uh, the, the homes that uh, live next to said area Right. And so all of these things, the, the, the obvious one, right, of the, the refugees who have no place to grow any of their culturally appropriate food. Right. And so all of this is sort of happening. And I think that some of the sacred work uh, of creating, I'm going to use this uh, uh, physically and uh, metaphysically, but uh, to creating and cultivating healthy soil for us as the people of God and in uh, the rich biodiversity that's required. For us to engage in ministry. And I think sometimes, kind of like what you're saying, I think we get stuck monocropping, quote unquote, our, our, our ministries in our churches. And, and just like we're growing uh, a thousand acres of corn out here, we're going to plot out, uh, you know, these sort of monocrop ministries or, or churches or whatever we're doing. And we just end up, I feel like, very siloed in that. And I, and I think that is one of the most hopeful parts of the story. Obviously, the story itself and what you're doing, but sort of what's underneath that, I think, is really beautiful. Is just this, these sort of, uh, you know, and if if you if you don't know, you don't know. But sort of like, yeah, or if you know, you know, like these these principles of permaculture, I guess mm -hmm. that that I hear you sort of talking about here and. And we have bathhouses, so we have uh, like yeah. herb styles. We have the bathhouses are awesome, and the, the and pollinators are coming back, and it's amazing. We see dragonflies. So we also have a like a pond. There was also a stream. By the way, I forgot to mention that there's a stream <laughs> that's coming from a wall that's potable water. That was why it's coming it was from this one of those. There's a huge kind of a rock wall that goes out uh -huh. the bottom part of the. Uh huh. And the stream's coming out of the wall. It's coming out of the ground, Love like, it. Up, and it's potable, and it's potable water, but it's mixing okay. with the dirty water, and it was causing mm -hmm. even more flooding, right? And so, wow. being able to separate that, the stream water from the storm yeah. water was important. So part of that design was making that into a pond, right? And so that it would stay separated as a, uh, as a stream, and not get mixed with the dirty polluted water right so the rest of the water goes into the bioswell the dirty water to get cleaned and then the stream is diverted into this pond the amazing thing is we created and built this designed this pond out within a week of like having planted near it and uh, everything had to be lined again and with soil brought in on top so that the ground wouldn't shift um, because we're inviting a lot of pressure and water into that space dragonflies showed up and um and you, you could see all of these, like you, in an in a empty parking lot, you wouldn't see different types of birds and dragonflies and bees and hummingbirds and, you know, um, types of butterflies that nobody has seen in that area just showed up. Um, and it's, you know, if you built it, they will come. And it's the reason I just wanted to mention why the garden is called Paradise Parking Plot. People voted, and you're not going to believe this. Some of the refugees uh, from different countries had heard the Joni Mitchell song, Big Yellow Taxi. And the, the lyrics of the song is, you pave paradise and you put up a parking lot. 
you took the trees and put them in the tree museum and you charged a dollar just to see them. Right? If, I don't know if you if I love it. Song. I love they, it. They knew the lyrics of the song and they said, we're deep paving paradise and putting up garden plots. So we should call this paradise parking plot. And so, so part of the design also is kind of shaped to like those places where cars would be parked. Now we're growing food. So we're reclaiming back the earth. Um, what would be lost, we're, we're, what would be just an impervious place, and now it's springing forth with life. And the beautiful stories that come out of that, um, and I'm going to, if you don't mind, share a story with you, just one of many, many. Um, we had a crew working there, their conservation crew with one of the conservation districts that were helping to build one of the rain gardens. And a lot of these were veterans who were hired by this crew. And often they've been so traumatized, they couldn't be inside. And so they, um, they had a lot of PTSD issues. And so this was a crew of like six people. And one of the, the crew members didn't speak very much. And he had, had to have his dog with him. Um, and he didn't, um, I never could, I would say hello. And, you know, and he would never respond back. Um, and they were like, he, he just likes to be left alone. He's a really hard worker, but he just, um, he doesn't really like to talk to people. So one of the, and they were there for quite some time doing, finishing up this, the kind of the, the large rain garden build. And the garden is fully operation. People are coming and going during the day, you know, people come and water and, you know, at different times, there's no timeline for when people can come. And there's a, the family, and I happened to be at the garden at that time. And uh, there's a family who I knew were working really long hours because they had a family member who was shot and killed in the country of origin and they couldn't go back to the funeral and they were working all these extra hours to send money home so that their relative could be buried and the family could have some money and they've been having a hard time keeping up with their plot so other gardeners had helped them water and weed and you know they knew what was happening and this was 10 o'clock on a like a wednesday morning and i saw that you know i'm like oh you're you're back like you're working all these hours and I happened to have the the guy who doesn't speak, like with the conservation crew, I, I was showing him something and he was walking with me and I encountered this family and I was talking to him. I said, um, you're, you're back. What's, what's happening? He said, yeah, today is actually the funeral, um, with the time difference. We've worked as hard as we can, sent all the money we could. Uh, we are so sorrowful that we couldn't be there and our heart was in turmoil. And we thought, where can we find peace? And we thought we would go to our garden. And we came here to find peace um, because we can't bring our loved one back. And we never thought he would die by bullet, right? And all of a sudden, the gentleman who doesn't speak, right? He said, I'm so sorry you lost someone. And um, so nobody, they didn't know each other's whole story. And this other family, you know, from they're from a part of Africa, and they reached out and they said, "I see you're praying, my, praying, my brother. I'm so glad you're outside in this beautiful place. I hope you find some peace as well." And both are byproducts of war. One who had participated in it as a soldier, and others who had been in war. Both had experienced trauma and loss, but in this space, they were finding peace in different ways, and it was calming them. They could get their hands in the soil. They could look up at the sky and feel connected again. That's 
what we have to offer. And if churches have spaces and they can offer that, um, what a gift it is. And well, that's, that's just so beautiful. I mean, you've quite literally cultivated sacred ground, you know, and, you know, and a part of me is like, we shouldn't be too surprised, should we, to find that ultimately garden spaces and places like this to reconnect with creation uh, give way to something for us as humanity uh, created in the image of a creator in a in a garden, you know, and um, man, that's that's beautiful. Well, well, maybe turning a corner here. Um, no, maybe we're kind of getting long, but uh, kind of swinging back to uh, piggybacking off Michaela's question earlier. And uh, I suppose as, uh, you know, I'm just thinking of maybe the pastor or whoever, um, a lay person in the church listening to this, uh, thinking about their congregation, thinking about their space, thinking about their community, and just, just wanting to, to engage in some form or fashion. What maybe what advice do you have, uh, or or just thoughts or encouragement for uh, for those people out there uh, who might be listening? And I get asked this question a lot, actually. And um, what I see happening, uh, and a lot of times in churches, is people in churches get together, right? Um, leadership, lay people in that church, and they talk to each other and say, "We want to be part of this community. We want to help the community." What are the things we have? What can what ministry can we do to really reach our community? But nobody has actually talked to the community, um, and so often people come up with things like maybe a daycare or uh, these are the things we can do. You know, they think about things that they can do with their resources that they think the community needs. I think one way, the best way to think about that again, that whole thought of nothing about us without us is for us is finding out well, what is the community around us who are they what do they look like what do they need um and you know who will talk to you without any money your city council members they will talk to you um they are they got elected you know they're they serve the people they'll tell you the lay of the land they'll tell you what the needs are in the community your neighborhood program if you're in an urban area every neighborhood has one also most um, communities, especially in urban areas, they get federal funds from a source called from the Housing and Urban Development called CDBG, Community Development Block Grant. And it's for low-income areas to develop communities, and it's, it's tied to infrastructure. And if you talk to the CDBG coordinator of any of these urban cities, they'll tell you, what are the zip codes that have the most lowest income? What are the needs in those communities? Like, you can get information from so many sources for free and people are willing to talk to you and you'll get a really good idea. Wow, this is what my, my neighboring community is. This is what they need. Um, how can I find out what other nonprofits or groups are doing? Where are the holes? Like wh wh what is not being met? And what do we have then fill that hole? And I think when that happens, you don't have to advertise. The people will come and they will be part of that because you'll get to include them in that journey and it will be richer um, instead of coming up with an idea that you think the community needs, maybe finding out what the community needs and then mm -hmm. seeing people step into that place. 
Yeah, absolutely. I was recently at a, at a conference of kind of, you know, similar conversations. And, uh, you know, one lady kind of stood up and said, we all don't need a community garden, you know, and, and a big part of me was like, you know, I don't know about that, but, uh, you that's know, true. but oh, this, it's very, it's very true. You know, that's, that's not the, the need, uh, across the board for, for every little, uh, church or community, but, uh, yeah, that's, that's beautiful. Yeah. And it could be, and I've had churches who have um, built a community garden, but their idea of a community garden was to grow food themselves for the local food bank or what they considered were people in need and then donate the food. But you often what they're growing, the people didn't want them. Like, um, and so they're finding out, gosh, they're growing it, giving to food bank there. If you have a lot of people from different parts of, say, Africa or even Asia, they're, they don't want a zucchini or a crookneck squash. That's not part of their cultural, like, so if you're growing something, nobody wants to eat it. Is that a good model? Um, and would it be better to invite people to grow their own food or grow it for them? Um, I mean, I'm not saying a garden is a bad idea, but maybe, maybe even at the design of it. Um, so again, finding out, Hey, what is it that people around me need? And then what do we have to offer as a congregation, whether it's physical uh, or whether it's resources within the community. And I think that's one of the most beautiful ways to really address what, and to serve others is giving them what they really need instead of assuming. And like, if I were to assume this is what Caleb really needs, <laughs> that's not what I need. Yeah, that's right. Just more coffee. It's really easy. Yeah. It's true. True. It, it's un. It is absolutely clear that you have impacted a lot of people in your community in really beautiful ways. But I'm interested to hear in what way you feel like you've been most impacted by this or how has God been moving in your life through these projects you've been a part of? Yeah, there was also concurrently a sewing program for pre-literate women also happening at Hillside Church. There's a commercial teaching kitchen also being built in that space. So, um, again, there's classes on food preservation and canning that, you know, then people in the garden can purchase. It, it's pretty cool. Um, so there's all kinds of stuff happening, all different concurrent projects at the same time. Um, each one of those, what's been powerful for me, not just what I'm doing now in this particular season, but I've done in years past, is what the powerful thing has been really listening and then really taking time to hear what others have to say. And then in hearing that, there's power in those stories. And if you're able to meet some of those, you're not going to be able to solve every problem, right? But if you're able to meet even a little bit, it's a gift. I mean, I feel rich all the time. I feel rich because um, I get to provide two key ingredients that God called me to do, be salt and light. They're not glamorous. But man, they're essential ingredients, aren't they? Salt and light. You need them to grow food, right? And you need, I mean, you need light and you need salt, but they're not sexy. And those are not, they're not, but they're essential. Life wouldn't work without them. And that's when Jesus calls us to, to be. And when we get to participate in the lives of others and maybe even solve one thing they've identified in a meaningful way, we get to be that essential ingredient that's that salt. Yeah that bit of light and 
you don't need to be famous to do that. You just got to be salt and light. That. I just got like two sermons just from that little uh, monologue right there. <laughs> that was great. Yeah. I'm just thinking like creation care, salty, not sexy, or, you know, <laughs> just any number of things there. Just uh, oh. And it's, it's a long work, you know, and I think we forget the work of the church, the work of the people. It's long. It's not, you don't, you're not the seagull. You fly in, sorry, crap on people and leave. Um, it's... <laughs> We're probably going to edit that out, but, <laughs> so good. but if, if that's not the work we're called to, if we're going to be in the community, in the neighborhood, right? It, it's the long game. It's the, it's the long, it's the generation, it's the impact, it's the long game. And so you can't just look at it for a short, ter- short term solution. We have to look at the long game and that's really that's right what God is calling us to and the whole work of creation care, it's not a quick fix. It's not a short little, it's a long game. Mm, Absolutely. Uh, You know, I think about, uh, maybe we've talked about it on here before. I can't remember, but you know, it's like Noah building the ark, you know, it was like over a hundred years or something kind of situation. And, uh, and I, and I think that just ark building and, you know, and taking, a, a year or more to depave a parking lot and all like creation care. I mean, all work worth doing takes time, obviously, but yeah, environmental justice in particular, uh, right. I mean, we're talking long vision and, uh, because we're talking generations, uh, and, and, um, and we're talking all creation across time. And, uh, I think that's beautiful. Yeah. And you're building, you're building legacy, you're leaving legacy behind and I guess my challenge to churches in urban areas, especially, would be those impact in urban spaces. It could be, it could, you could be in a small space, but the impact is so big because, especially when it comes to creation and, and creation care, because again, lack of green space, all of those things, that's such a big deal that any changes that you can be participate in, it pays out huge dividends. Um, and especially in urban spaces. And then a chance to reimagine and dream. Maybe we can solve more than one problem in one space, right? That's what's up. Well, so much fodder here for, uh, for us. Um, so one last question, one thing we, we end on sometimes. Uh, I'd love to hear maybe just, what's something that you love about God's creation? Oh, my goodness. Um, being outside. Um, and I do love, I think I've mentioned this several times now, that connectedness, that we're part of something bigger, um, of knowing I am, I am small. I'm part of creation. All the faces and people I see, they're all part of creation. There's nothing more powerful than to be literally to have maybe your hands in the soil. Um, your mental health, your mind shifts, and you realize uh, this is bigger than me. The spaces are bigger than me, and the earth is bigger than me um and the sky is bigger than me like the, the canopy right but we're connected we're in it um and it's it's beautiful to know that every story every person in that in this space we're connected together um i love that i love that knowing that i'm a small thing in something big i'm a small piece in something big and i belong and i make a difference with the small things I get to do. Mm. Well, amen. 
Thank you so much. This has uh, just been such a treasure of a conversation. And thank you for inviting me and letting me like chat with you and get to know you a little bit better. The Millennial Pastor Podcast was created and produced by Byron Certain and Josiah Jones. If you enjoyed this podcast, then please be sure to rate, review, or subscribe and visit themillennialpastor.com for more podcasts like it.